If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible um, in one of the chairs in front of you or behind you, uh, there should be a paper Bible, a gray Bible. And um, I think it's on page 533. Thank you, Chris. If you don't have a Bible in the chair in front of you on page 533. If you're new to church, this is the part of our gathering. You can just assume that when Christians gather, they sing and they pray together and they uh, observe things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then this is the portion of our gathering together when we um, open up a portion of Scripture and we talk about and try to give the sense of it and teach through it and then give us some practical application. And we have been working through the book of Acts. It's a New Testament book uh, that describes the time period after Jesus rose from the grave and uh, came back to life and then ascended back to heaven, uh, what happened in the church? What did the church do? And how did God work in the life of the church? So the portion that we're at today is Acts chapter 7. Uh, it's verses 1 through 60, which, uh, you know, that's a lot for me. I don't usually, I'm very comfortable with 8 to 10 verses at the most, but, but we're going to go ahead and, uh, and try to get through um, all 60 verses of Acts chapter 7. And we're going to do so, uh, it should last until about 7 o'clock tonight. <laughs> I don't think you have any plans tonight anyway, so we can stay here and pray and read Scripture, right Jacob? We, that's alright. Have anything else going on? Acts chapter 7 verses 1 through 60, and, and while you're there, you may just uh, keep a finger there and let me set up this passage uh, with its greater context. It's always important for us to understand, not just to take a little piece of Scripture out of its context, but to understand it in its context. And so Acts chapter 3 through Acts chapter 11, what you see is the transition from temple-centered sacrifice and worship to church-centered people now indwelled with the Holy Spirit rather than the temple containing the presence of God. And that transition from the temple to the church is what we see in this larger section. And just to kind of help us understand, Jesus tells a parable in Mark chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but just keep this in the back of your mind as we approach Acts chapter 7 and this larger temple narrative section. In Acts chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable, and he says, A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and then went into another country. So you get the picture? Jesus is telling a story about a man who owned a piece of property, and he built it up to be fruitful and to be productive, a vineyard to... um, produce wine, and then to bear fruit and be productive. Verse 2, when the season came, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took that servant and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. I'm sure the owner, not quite sure why they did this, but says he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. So he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And he had still one other. This owner of the vineyard had one other. 
And it says he was a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will now be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. If you have that backdrop in mind, what you see taking place is the owner of the vineyard in Acts chapter 7. You can turn back over to Acts chapter 7. The owner of the vineyard coming and removing the tenants from his vineyard and giving it to another people. The religious leaders at that time rejected Jesus, the Son, and killed Him, hoping to gain possession of His inheritance. And what we've seen over the past month or so in these temple conflict narratives, they arrest Peter and they put him in jail overnight for healing a man and for preaching that Jesus is the Messiah raised from the dead and that they rejected Him. They got angry about that. They said, stop saying that, right? In Acts chapter 3 and 4. And then um, they uh, arrested the apostles because they continued to preach this. They put them in jail and an angel let them out of jail and they continued to go back into the temple and they continued to present this word of life. And all the while, many people are coming to faith in Christ. Many of the Jews that had formerly rejected Jesus are now believing. And the footnote on Acts 4 is that many priests are now becoming obedient to the faith. And so the religious leaders don't like this, so they beat the apostles and warn them. So now we get to Acts chapter 7, and here's another believer in Jesus who is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, and now they are uh, accusing Him, and uh, they're going to... Um, they're, at the end of chapter 7, Stephen becomes the church's first martyr. Their anger goes from accusing and putting in jail accusing and beating and putting in jail and warning, to now accusing, going on trial, and then stoning him to death. Stephen becomes the first martyr. So just before we read the text here, just for immediate context, Stephen, look back at chapter 6 of Acts, verse 8, and we'll just get a run-up to chapter 7, verse 1 through 60. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now remember, Stephen was a deacon and he was filled with the Spirit so much so that he was performing these incredible things, healing people and doing great works. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So there's opposition. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. So then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon Stephen and they seized him and brought him before the council. And now they're here in front of the council. It's the Sanhedrin. It's the religious leaders and the political leaders of Israel. 
Um, and they have this person before them. And verse 13 says that there are witnesses who said that this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, and against the law, that's Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. In verse 15, gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel, right? What does that mean? We read that last week. His face like an angel means that anyone who was in the presence of the glory of God, Exodus 34, Moses was in the presence of God on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and when he came down, his countenance, his face was radiant. It just was so bright from the glory of God that they said, put a veil over your face, Moses. It's just too bright before they didn't have sunglasses, right? They, they just just stuck a big um, like bag over his head to cover the glory of God because they, they couldn't look at it. This is what this is alluding to in Acts chapter 6, verse 15. Stephen, the irony is that they're supposed to be in the temple where the presence of God is. It's their face that should be radiant, but it's not. It's Stephen, the one that they're accusing. Stephen's face is described as being like the face of an angel, which was a visible manifestation of the brightness of the glory of God on his face, just like there had been with Moses in Exodus 34, and to an even greater extent to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transformed into these bright, shining face and countenance and clothes. So now Stephen has a chance to defend himself. It's a speech, not a sermon. A speech in which he defends himself against the uh, charges. And there are two distinct parts of this that we're reading in Acts chapter 7, 1 through 60. There's a defense and an offense, right? And you'll know, you'll know when it goes into offense, right? I mean, I'll just look up and, you'll, and I'll see if you can tell, all right? So let's start in chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? What things? The things, do you speak against the temple and do you speak against Moses? Give a defense, Stephen. Are these things true? And Stephen said, verse 2, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory, and that's a repeated phrase, glory in God, for Stephen in this speech, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So here we have Stephen. They're testing his orthodoxy and he's just giving them the basics about Abraham, about Jacob, about Isaac, about the patriarchs. He's, he's declaring to them the orthodoxy of his viewpoints. He's, up until now, there's nothing wrong with Stephen's defense. He's arguing and demonstrating to them that he knows what he's talking about, and they, they agree with each other on these basic facts. 
Verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine in Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. If you're looking for one of the most exciting parts of the Bible, if you start in Genesis 30 and get to 48, the, the tension builds over a dozen chapters or more where Joseph is sold and one injustice and rejection after one injustice and rejection and all the suffering that he goes through and he gets to the point where his brothers are in front of them and, and he has the power and, 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 and he, he could instantly you know, have them destroyed and instead he says, I am your brother Joseph. And then this incredible reveal, it's one of the most uh, amazing tension-filled moments in Scripture and Joseph, who was rejected, gives them grace. And this is Stephen's highlight here. Verse uh, 14, So Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 people in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hammer and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Isn't that interesting? Moses was placed in the water that was supposed to kill him, and he was delivered through water into the king's house, right? Here we are again, talking about water and, and that same theme. We see it in Moses' life. Verse 22, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. They rejected the one that God sent to save them. You see it? And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, two brothers, two Hebrews quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, 
and have heard their groaning, and I have come out, come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. It's a key verse there in Stephen's speech. Verse 35. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs, right? What was Stephen doing? Performing signs and wonders. What did the apostles do? They performed signs and wonders. What did Jesus the Messiah come doing? Performing signs and wonders. You see a trend here? All these people, God gives them the ability to perform signs and wonders to authenticate their message of who they are. Moses came and performed these signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, Deuteronomy 18.15 is the quote, God will raise up for you in the future a prophet like me from among your brothers. And he is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke with him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the presence of God and the person of Jesus that um, in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the presence of God was with him. And when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he visited with God in this cloud and the cloud descended on Mount Sinai. Matter of fact, to this day, um, um, archaeologists have identified a mountain in the wilderness around Mount Sinai that is charred from fire and smoke. There is a, nearby that a, a rock that has been split in half where you can see evidence of flowing water. All of these archaeological things point to the reality of what Moses experienced here. But Moses is saying, listen, I, I'm, uh, God is using me in this way, but God is going to raise up in the future a prophet like me who will fulfill the same deliverance role. Our fathers, verse 39, refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt. You see what Stephen's doing? I mean, he's just giving them demonstrations of righteous, God-given deliverances, leaders, saviors, and the people continuously reject these leaders. Joseph rejected. Moses rejected. And what did they do? They made a calf. Verse 41, they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and they rejoiced in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, and the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the time of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And this is a key part of of his defense. Verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Heaven is my throne, as the prophet says, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Didn't my hands make all these things? All throughout this 
time, this defense, Stephen has said, listen, God spoke to Abraham, not here in this place, right? They, they accused him of speaking against this holy place. And he said, well, listen, even our father Abraham, God spoke to him in, in Ur of the Chaldeans, and then again in Haran, and then even in the land, he didn't even give him an ounce of the possession of the land. And then Joseph experienced God's presence in Egypt, and then Moses experienced God's presence at the burning bush in the wilderness of, of Sinai. So in all these places, God is not limited to a place like you've accused me of. Our God is unlimited in where he dwells. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Let's look at verse 51, and you'll see the shift here. He's been in defense mode. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. I mean, you want to get somebody angry, right? This is the same play from the same playbook that Peter and John in their defense said, you murdered the author of life. And then the apostles, when they were before the Sanhedrin, this Jesus whom you killed. And then here we have it again in this passage that Stephen, and, and, and they said before, you, you're determined to bring this man Jesus' blood upon our hands. Stephen does the same thing. You who received the laws delivered by angels but did not keep it. So verse 54, what do they do? When they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. That's the bookend. He started with the glory of God. He ends with the glory of God. And not only is he talking about the glory of God, but now he's standing and he sees the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Interesting thing, in a courtroom, you always see Jesus depicted as sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is the only time you'll see him standing. And he comes to stand in Stephen's defense. Comes to stand in Stephen's, and Stephen is defending himself, and he looks up and sees Jesus standing with him. And, and you've heard that sort of cliche thing that Jesus, uh, one plus Jesus is a majority, right? Or something along those lines that with Jesus on our side and all people against us, that we can be okay. This is that same idea. Jesus stands in his defense, and so Stephen is empowered to receive what's coming. And what's coming? Verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is the premier persecutor of the church in the next few chapters. Uh, the one who is the greatest enemy, depicted here as um, approving of Stephen's death, Saul will then become the Apostle Paul who writes basically the rest of our New Testament. So the people stoning Stephen asked Saul to hold their clothes while they stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Who does that sound like? Jesus on the cross. He says, Lord, they do not know what they're doing. Forgive them. 
Stephen resembled Jesus in all these ways. What can we do with this defense that Stephen makes? Let me just bring out a couple of points and, and then we'll be dismissed here. Stephen, yes, defends himself against his accusers on the defense part. Listen, um, he defends himself by saying, I'm not speaking against this place. God appeared in all these other places. God is bigger than this place. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me? But that's not all his speech does. He's not just trying to make the point that God is bigger than than this temple. That's not all that's going on here. Stephen's defense has a sharper message that's layered. And you're going to hear it clearly when he gets to his offense. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised people. His defense is sharper. It starts with the theme of God sending a deliverer or a Savior to His people, and that deliverer is rejected. Salvation will come through a rejected leader. You see Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He will be despised and abused and he will be destroyed. He will be beaten so badly that he won't resemble a person. Isaiah 53 describes that. Joseph, the patriarchs, verses 9-10, through jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, rescued him out of all of his afflictions, gave him favor and wisdom, and he became the ruler over Egypt. The rejected servant is exalted to the place of ruler. Moses, Acts 7.25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by, their, by his hand, but they did not understand. And then verses 37-40, through 40, Moses, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. All these themes that Stephen is bringing out in his defense all culminate in the person of Jesus And Stephen switches to this offense. You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. What does he mean? Just like Moses was rejected, just like Joseph was rejected, God sent them a Savior and they rejected Him. In the same way, God sent Jesus. You remember Mark 12? The owner of the vineyard sends servant after servant after servant to come and collect the fruit of the vineyard, and they beat them, and they stone them, and they kill them, and then he sends, I'll send one more, my son. And they said, this is the heir. Meaning, the tenants of the vineyard knew who Jesus was. I mean, frankly, it would be hard not to. It would be hard not to. Because all throughout the Old Testament, you see clearly the person of Jesus Christ. Flip over with me just for a minute to Luke chapter 24. Uh, You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So skip over John and go to Luke chapter 24. Going left in your Bible. uh, If you get to Mark, you've gone too far. Luke chapter 24. On the day that Jesus um, was resurrected from the dead, we read this account in Luke 24, verse 13. Two disciples um, are walking to a village called Emmaus. It's 
about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things. What are all these things that happened? Jesus dying on the cross, uh, three days in the tomb, and then the women at the uh, tomb came and they found it open and Jesus wasn't there. And so they're talking about these things. And verse 15 of Luke 24 says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what what are you guys talking about? What's this conversation that you're having? And they, they still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered him and said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? Right? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just like the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been on that walk? Seven miles with Jesus, just teaching you how this is not a new innovation. Jesus and the Messiah. But from the very beginning, starting way early on, he interpreted to them all the passages about himself in Scripture. In other words, Jesus taught them that the Scriptures spoke of him clearly. Spoke of him clearly. The chief priests, the religious leaders, they should have recognized him. Other people did, but just listen to this. I love the Old Testament. I know some people don't. They look at it, they're confused. They like the Gospels best and, or the Epistles best or some narratives best or Psalms best. But, but I just love walking through the Old Testament. I've heard it said that it's like a room richly furnished but dimly lit. Because we see in the Old Testament all these shadows and figures and types and images that are a little bit fuzzy and hard to make out at times, but, but when you put them all together and then you see the person of Jesus, it's like, that's what that was talking about. That's what that meant. And the, that's where we get, that's what this is talking about. And Jesus walked these disciples through it on this road to Emmaus. Genesis 3.15, maybe he started there, the first gospel. That after the curse and after the sin and separation, that in the curse... From sin, God promises that one descendant of a woman, he, a masculine singular pronoun, he, this male son descendant, shall come and crush the head of the serpent. And they waited for him and they looked for him until you get to Genesis 5 where we've traced eight generations of the line of Cain and how evil and corrupt they were. And then you get trace eight generations of the line of Seth 
and how they at that time begin to call on the name of the Lord until they get to this featured son, Noah, in uh, Genesis chapter 5, Lamech fathers Noah, and it's said about him, out of the ground the Lord has caused, has cursed, now this one, Noah, shall finally bring us relief. They were looking for a son, the promised one, to come and reverse the curse. And it wasn't Noah. But in Genesis 12, then we narrow the, the field down from um, Seth's line down to Abraham. And Abraham, in Genesis 12, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And, and even in Abraham's life, we see these shadows and figures, right? Genesis 22, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love. What language does that remind us of? At Jesus' baptism, this is my son, my only son whom I love. Listen to him. And in the Mount of Transfiguration, God proclaims, this is my son, my only son whom I love. This is echoed from Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him on the mountain. And then what does Abraham do? He says, we're going to go on a three-day journey. And he puts the wood on his son's back, and he places him on the altar. And then as he's about to sacrifice his only son, what does he look up and he sees? A lamb caught in a thicket of thorns becomes the perfect substitute to take Isaac's place. And so he substitutes the ram caught in the thicket and he sacrifices the perfect substitute instead of his son. All that is supposed to show us something when you get back down to, um, you see in Genesis 30, Joseph, the suffering servant who's rejected by his brothers, but becoming a slave, he's exalted to kingship and he rescues his people. Genesis 49, we learn that it's not just from the tribe or the, uh, the people of Israel, but now it's the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from you. In Exodus, we see in Moses, the great I am has sent you. And Jesus says that before Abraham was, I am. And he makes seven I am statements. I'm the bread of life. I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is repeating all these familiar phrases. Even at the Passover, on the day that God will bring judgment by killing the firstborn sons of Egypt, Israel was supposed to take a spotless lamb and they were instructed, be careful, don't break any of his bones. Right? Jesus, when they looked at him and they said that not one of his bones was broken to fulfill the prophecy. Um, that take this spotless lamb and sacrifice it and place its blood over the doorpost so that the death angel may pass over you so you are saved by the blood of the lamb. Moses is given instructions on how Israel can find forgiveness of sins. They're to take the blood of a spotless lamb every year and place it on the mercy seat which the presence of God hovered above in the most holy place in the temple. And so what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus at the Jordan River? Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Moses acts as a mediator between Israel and God, interceding for them and making sacrifice for them. And then Moses predicts in Deuteronomy 18.15 that a greater prophet like him will arise in the future. Listen, the promised son is getting closer and closer and closer, and the picture is becoming less blurry and more clear as David himself becomes a type of Messiah foreshadowing Jesus. He's a good shepherd and a good king after God's own heart. And Jesus refers to to himself as the great shepherd and as the king of kings and lord of lords. In 2 Samuel 7:12, the promise comes to David after his failure, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom forever and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. 
I could go on and on and on. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Micah prophesies about Bethlehem, Jonah, three days in the belly of the well. All these things in the Old Testament, we see them clearly all over the place. And then in the person of Jesus, it's like a neon light saying, I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the one. And yet Jesus told the Pharisees and the religious leaders in John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? Jesus made himself known He was very clear about who he was. And by the thousands, Israelites were putting their faith in Jesus. But the rulers rejected him. And so the church age began. Jesus took the vineyard from the tenants and leased it out to tenants who would bear fruit. What's going to happen? Well, we know from Paul's words in Romans 9 that there has been a partial hardening of Israel's heart until the number of Gentiles us Gentile dogs come in to the church and then God will redeem Israel. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of His salvation. And Stephen puts his finger right on the sensitive spot to those religious leaders. You're stiff-necked and stubborn. I think that's what's the hardest uh, for me to understand. Why do we do that? Why do we reject Jesus? Why do we, I just need a little bit more evidence or I just, I don't get it or I just, I don't know. John 1 says that men love darkness and they love their sin and in spite of the clear evidence of who Jesus is, they reject him. (laughs) The saddest picture is revelation. After Jesus returns bodily and starts to rule over, at the end of his thousand year millennial reign, guess what? There are people who still reject Jesus the Messiah. Why? Why? Because we love our sin and we want to stay in it. That's what it is. Stubborn, stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts. And yet here this morning we see four people who turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and embrace Him as the Messiah and experience new life. Father, we can't thank You enough for the ark of safety that You provided in Jesus the Messiah. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that for those who have remained stiff-necked and stubborn and obstinate, rejecting Jesus, that they might see you for who you are as the spotless lamb that delivers from death. We pray that you would provide new life in Christ for those who have ears to hear. We pray that you would work among us We thank you for the chance that we have to gather as a congregation, not because we're righteous and holy in and of ourselves, but because you have given us the righteousness of Christ as a covering. A robe of righteousness that we don't deserve and we didn't earn by doing the right things, but we're a gift of grace. Not by works so that none of us can boast. And so we praise you for your gift of grace and mercy. We thank you for this time that we've had to study your word. Use it to change us. In Jesus' name, amen.